Welcome to the Friday Five, a series in which we cover five stories in health and science research over the previous week that you may have missed. There are plenty of controversies and ethical issues in science, and we get into many of them in our online magazine. But there are also lots of stories to be excited about, and this news roundup is focused on scientific work to give you a therapeutic dose of inspiration headed into the weekend. First up in the Friday Five, if you have diabetes, you know that metformin is a common treatment. You may have also heard about research showing that people who take metformin for diabetes have been found to live longer. It slows down aging in animals, and longevity scientists are starting a 3,000-person clinical trial to see if metformin helps prevent age-related diseases. Now, other researchers at the Cleveland Clinic have found another possible use for this dynamic drug, treating the most common type of heart arrhythmia, called atrial fibrillation. The researchers didn't start with just metformin, far from it. In their study, published in Cell Reports Medicine, they set out to test 2,800 different treatments, then looked at which of our genes are affected by those treatments, and they examined the cluster of genes that are linked to people having atrial fibrillation based on previous research. From this analysis, they discovered that metformin targets 30 different genes people have that increase the risk of atrial fibrillation. And metformin directly changes how eight of these genes get expressed. For their next trick, the Cleveland Clinic team worked on stem cells in a dish, turning them into heart cells that were alive and beating. When they introduced metformin into the dish, they saw benefits to how these eight specific genes were expressed. If future testing confirms that metformin is useful, it would be important because atrial fibrillation can lead to heart attacks and strokes. Treatments exist, but they sometimes work poorly and can have bad side effects. Metformin was approved for diabetes over 60 years ago, and we know it's safe for use based on this track record. We also know it affects metabolism, which makes sense because issues with metabolism can lead to atrial fibrillation. Next up, history is littered, quite literally, with examples of innovations being designed without considering their side effects on the environment and our health. Researchers in Japan are trying to change this. They're looking down the road, or up at it, in thinking about how flying cars might cause an excess of noise pollution if we aren't mindful of this problem. The past few years have seen companies like Google and Airbus investing in making the perfect flying cars so we can live in real versions of Back to the Future and Blade Runner. They face many challenges, but here's one that doesn't get enough attention. Flying cars are really, really loud. Cities are already loud enough, and too much noise has been linked to higher rates of anxiety, depression, metabolic disorders, and heart disease. The Japanese scientists had people watch videos of flying cars that seemed like they were about 50 feet overhead while listening to recordings of drones at about the same height. They changed up the volume eight different times, and as the volume dropped, people reported lower levels of stress. But the researchers had these people hooked up to a device showing their brain activity, and according to this device, their stress levels actually did not decrease after the noise went away. The research team thinks their study, published in the Technical Journal of Advanced Mobility, points to the long-term impacts of flying cars on anxiety levels. As engineers work on the flying cars of the future, they should be researching and considering how quiet these vehicles need to be. And, this study shows, they should rely on objective measures that go beyond people's own self-reports of how the engines roaring above are affecting them. When you think of good health, I'm guessing that pain and mucus aren't the first words that come to mind. But some researchers at Harvard beg to differ. In a recent study, they showed that cells involved in pain send important signals to other cells along the intestines and airways. These cells are called goblet cells, so named because they're shaped like cups. Inside those cups are a type of mucus made of proteins and sugars. This is the gel that coats our organs and protects them from getting beat up and scraped by the typical body's internal roughhousing. 
The Harvard team looked at mice and found that the goblet cells release this mucus after they've interacted with certain neurons in the gut that are focused on sensing pain. The types of receptors in goblet cells that get triggered by the pain cells are present in both mice and humans. To really bring the pain, the research team gave the mice the main ingredient in chili peppers, and then they watched as the pain neurons in the mice sent the SOS signal to the goblet cells to spill over their soothing mucus coating, regardless of whether the mice demanded more hot wings. The mice that lacked pain neurons didn't produce enough of this helpful mucus and were at risk of developing a disease of gut inflammation called colitis. It's a little confusing because pain is a symptom of really bad gut inflammation, but this research shows pain is also helpful in protecting the gut. The study, published in Cell, suggests that pain medications, like those that help with migraines, could end up suppressing the goblet cells, leading to problems with the gut. The Harvard researchers are now interested in looking at whether people who have inflammatory bowel disease might have something wrong with their pain signals. Next up, in the U.S., stillbirth happens in one out of every 165 births of babies who are older than 20 weeks. Just as disturbingly, the causes aren't known in as many as one out of three cases. But researchers at the University of Utah have uncovered a potential explanation. Risk factors passed down by brothers, uncles, and other male relatives. They can be male relatives of either the father or mother, but the risk is greatest when the father passes it down from the male relative. The Utah researchers looked at over 9,400 stillbirths and compared them to almost 19,000 live births over the past several decades, finding 390 families that had unusually high numbers of stillbirths. They looked back through the generations to find the specific relatives who carried the risk and discovered that this risk was being inherited from male family members, which had never been shown before. Overall, infants die at a much lower rate than a century ago, but we haven't managed to make the same kind of dent in the rate of stillbirths. Although scientists have learned that if parents have issues like hypertension or diabetes, that can drive up the risk, the Utah researchers hope their study can point to specific genes in the male relatives that could provide reasons for the many cases of stillbirth that are still unexplained. We may be able to identify and target genetic factors to eventually prevent many more stillbirths from happening. The scientists note that their sample drew heavily from families of Northern European descent, so future studies must explore how these trends apply to people with different genetic backgrounds. Next up in the Friday Five, researchers at the University of Valencia have found that small bits of material that travel between our cells seem to play an important role in longevity. The scientists made these bits, called extracellular vesicles, or EVs, by digging into the fatty tissue of young mice and pulling out stem cells. They got the stem cells to produce the EVs, which they injected into the tails of much older mice, two injections in one week. After just two weeks, the older mice were stronger, showed better paw-to-eye coordination, and had more energy. The researchers had shaved the hair of the mice when the experiment started, and they watched as the hair grew back faster in the fountain of youth mice than the bald mice that didn't get the EVs. 30 days after the first injection, the benefits maxed out, and after 60 days, the improvements were completely gone, and the mice went back to watching murder she wrote reruns and complaining about the weather. The Valencia research team also dissected some of the older mice who'd received the EVs and saw that their kidneys had begun to regenerate. These mice also had less inflammation, and some of their tissues showed signs of being biologically younger. No one's entirely sure why EVs have this effect, but EVs may buff up the communication between the organs and cells. In untreated animals, this exchange of information gets worse as father time wreaks havoc on our tissues and cells. 
The study, which was published in Science Advances on Wednesday, builds on research in the past, finding that the blood from younger mice seems to have a rejuvenating effect on older mice. There's also an enzyme in EVs that's been shown to increase the lifespan of mice in previous studies. Don't go out and hire your own personal blood boy just yet. Unlike the kidney, other parts of the mice's bodies did not seem to get younger, and scientists are still pretty clueless about how such transfusions would affect people. Plus, we don't know the right amount of EVs for humans. But researchers are very interested in studying these questions. And in an honorable mention this week, when I think of the brain, it seems so personal and entwined with who we are as individual people that it seems incredible that things we do or that happen to us could change the brain's actual physical shape. But research is increasingly showing that the brain's structure does indeed shapeshift to some extent. In a new study presented in Vienna this past Tuesday, scientists at the University of Frankfurt scanned the brains of 109 people with depression before giving them electrical brain stimulation, therapy, or antidepressants. After just six weeks of these treatments, new brain scans showed that the brains of these people had rewired in important ways, regardless of which type of treatment they received. Previous studies have shown that each of these three types of treatments can help people who have depression. And Johns Hopkins researchers have found new cells in the brains of mice after they received electrical stimulation. The German research team thinks that their new study should give some measure of hope to people living with depression and other mental health issues, that their brain structures not only can be molded in ways that address some of their symptoms, but that this could possibly be accomplished in as quickly as six weeks. As always, you can find links to each study I've discussed this week in the show notes. And please check out the Leaps.org magazine online, where you can learn about the latest and most important challenges and developments in science, such as this week, an article on the connection between air pollution and lung cancer in people who've never smoked cigarettes. Overall, the Leaps.org platform looks at innovations through the lens of rational optimism. You can find out what to be concerned about, but we also tell you which scientific breakthroughs are giving reason for excitement. Thanks for listening to the Friday Five, and have a great weekend.